I'm going to be reading uh, Psalm 19, uh, which is a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are, uh, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you, Amy. Uh, I love that psalm, uh, especially when we're considering what we're talking about today, which is going to have to do a lot with uh, some, some theology and who God is and what He's decreed and all those types of things. So that's, uh, that's a little bit of, of the taste of where we're going this morning. Um, first, I have to say, I just I have to say I'm impressed with you guys as a church, as a whole, um, one, what's happened recently, just that whole fundraising campaign, uh, we threw it out there. It's the first time we as a church have ever done anything like that. And I remember um, we, we were like, hey, let's, let's see if we can get this raised by, by May 1st. And I think the typical response to that was like, yeah, right, like that's going to happen. And uh, you guys showed up, and it was amazing. I mean, there actually, um, there was another 1,000 that came in after that, so we're actually like 16,940 that was donated to, uh, to our church. So that's awesome. Uh, so you guys rose to that challenge. And then yesterday, just watching, well, actually this week, so there was a lot of things that happened. We had, um, I don't know if you guys didn't know this, but, but Luke and Rachel moved. Um, they felt like they were just too far away from the church, so they moved to the training center and... Uh, <laughs> They're literally across the street, um, but that's, that's not for us to go and knock on their doors. That's just to, you know, realize that Luke just has to wake up and walk across the road to get to his office. So, um, but, but this week, there are some people that gave, I know some people took off work and went over to help them, and uh, people gave their time to go do that, so I really appreciate that. And then there are people that showed up yesterday and uh, were up on the training center and tearing off shingles, and it was hot, and... Um, then they were tearing off the side with staples, and it took them forever. And, but they were, they were like, we're going to finish this. So they did. And uh, we don't have all the shingles back up, but at least the hard part's done. So 
Uh, again, thank you guys. That that's a lot of work, and that's a savings for us. That's about a a three thousand dollars savings for us as we we do this. You know work on a, a facility. So um, those are all things that you're doing collectively as a church. And then beyond that, I mean, I don't even know all the other stories. You know, you guys are connecting with people out in the community. You're sharing your faith, your neighbors. Um, that's really what it's all about. And, and I hope that we hear more of those stories because we love to share about those stories too and pray for you. So, so those are some of the things that are going on. It's exciting to, to be part of a church that is actively engaged with each other and on the community. So uh, it's kudos to you guys. Good job on that. Well, we are in our Taboo series, and so far we've dealt with things that are more like, you know, cultural issues. We've dealt with like tattoos and piercings, and that was the first one, and uh, the body is the temple, and then we went into gender, and that's certainly a hot topic today in our culture, our society. Last year, or last week, we dealt with uh, more of a spiritual discipline, giving, and, and why we give, uh, and so that was fun. I, I heard good responses from that. People said they enjoyed, you know, leadership team coming up and just being able to express their thoughts on that, and so I think that went well. And then today, we're going to go into a, a pretty heavy theological, not debate, not argument, but just presentation of really who God is when it comes to this next question, and that is salvation, or this topic, salvation for the unreached and unable. How do we deal with that subject? And I don't think you can deal with that subject without really diving into just part of who God is, His attributes, His characteristics. And one of the major um, sections or parts of God, characteristics of God that's been debated with this question over the years is God's sovereignty. How sovereign is God? And if you have, I think, a real biblical worldview of, of who God is, you're going to say God is absolutely sovereign. He's not changing as time goes by. He's not what some have presented, what's called an open theistic view, where God is just changing as time goes by. He's not that at all. He is who He is. He is the Creator God. He is majestic. He reigns supreme. He knows every sing- single thing that happens. I had a professor explain to me this way. You know those, when you go out and you see the, the trees and they have, some of those trees, I don't even know what the trees are, but they have those, those like helicopter seeds. Linden trees out there? All right. All right. No, her least favorite tree. Look at her head. She's, come on, you can slap him. It's just whack him right there. Okay. All right. Chainsaw time this year. All right. Well, those, you know how those, they fall and then they spin? He said, God knows exactly how many times they spin in the pathway from the top of where they go to where they land. You think about the detail. I mean, it talks about, you know, he knows the numbers of our head, or numbers of hair on our head and, and all those types of things. God knows all these little details. He is sovereign. He predicts. He, can, he can, can make those things happen. So, so that's just who God is. You know, we get an idea of who He is. I think we have to understand that when the Bible presents God, He, he presents God as a sovereign being. Okay? We have to understand that when we come to this question of salvation for the unreached and unable. At the same time, there's this portion of Scripture that talks about us as being responsible as human beings. And we have a responsibility 
And so we're going to take a look at that too. And, and the debate over the years, and the debate will, that will continue for many years, as to how much, when it comes to salvation, how much is God involved in salvation and how much is man, mankind involved in salvation. So we'll take a look at those. So that's a little bit about where we're going today. Hopefully it'll kind of prime the pump a little bit and, and let us uh, have an idea of, of where God will hopefully take us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time that we can get together and, and the truth of your word. And as we dig into this really theological uh, study of who you are, I pray that you would lead us, guide us, and direct us. What is it you're teaching us? What is it that your word tells us? And uh, Father, I pray that as we leave this place today, we would know you so much better. And as we understand you more, we would also be motivated and encouraged to, to follow you, love you, and serve you more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the greatest mysteries, I don't know the greatest mystery, but a, a great mystery, I should say. Uh, when we uh, started taking, you know, foster children, you look at a situation like this, you bring them into your, your home, and you start to think through the different scenarios for that child. And I thought about that before, but it becomes a little more realistic. Um, I had it. I had it pretty pretty nice. Uh, now we lived on a farm. It was about 180 acres or so, and I could ride my bike all over the place. And uh, we had a canal running through it. And I know you know that gets scary, of course, having a canal. But we swam in that and had a had a fun time with it. Uh, I built things on the farm. I mean, I just I just was a kid. I enjoyed it. I loved it. Um, and I, and to this day, I'm grateful for that. But why was I born in that family? You can go back. If you were drive down 12th on Nampa, uh, you can drive by a, an old hospital. It wasn't so like two years ago, a year ago. I think it was still working. They've shut it down recently. Mercy Medical Center is what it was called then. Uh, and that's where I was born. Okay. Why was I born there? I don't know. Why was I born in the family I was born into? I don't know. We have a child, his name is Carter, and he's with us. And we ask the question, why was he born in the family he was born into? Why is it that the mom is struggling to get a grip on her life so she can have that child back under her care? Why is it, and I know of a, of a family who has a child, when they went and picked up that child, had cigarette burns on his body and bruises? Why? You ever ask those questions? We don't control those things, do we? I don't know why I was born in the family I was born in, and I had a mom and dad who loved me and cared for me, and, and, and my dad worked three jobs at one point just to try to make ends meet and all those types of things. I had that. I had that as an example in my life, and I don't know why my kids are so blessed to be in the family they're blessed to be in, right? That's supposed to be kind of a joke, but... But they're born there, and, and it's, look, I look at what they have, and I think, wow, this is pretty amazing for them. They're not living under a bridge somewhere, homeless. And that child didn't have a, have a choice. So these are things I think we struggle with as we go through life. Like, how does that happen? God, who is a sovereign God, how do some of these things happen? So those are the things I think people struggle with, and they struggle with this question. What happens to somebody who never hears the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or what happens to that person 
who is born, who's just unable to comprehend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or what happens to a child who dies before they have the capability to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer that fully. I just want to give to you, hopefully, an idea of who God is so that when you leave this place, you'll trust Him more to say, you know what, God is supreme, He's sovereign, and He holds the answers to all those questions. He is good, He is just, and I trust Him to do the right thing. So that's kind of where we're going, and, and that's what we'll be talking about as we move along. So as we do, let's, uh, well, that's the, the question. What happens to people who never hear the gospel or mentally unable to understand it? Um, here's some passages. Now, if you're not familiar with Romans chapter 9, this might surprise you a little bit. If you've read this before, you've maybe wrestled with it. But as we go through it, you'll be like, wow, I didn't know God would maybe talk to us like that. So Romans chapter 9, starting with verse 1, it says this, I, which is Paul, Okay, he speaks the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why would he have unceasing anguish in his heart? Well, he goes on to say, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Now, who are his brothers and sisters? So here he's saying, I would give up my faith. I would give up my faith for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, he goes on to say, verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that God gave a, a covenant to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and his descendants, and those became known as the Israelites. And that's what he's saying here when he says the adoption and glory covenants and the giving of the law, temple services, and all those were given to Abraham's descendants. He says, I wish, I wish that they would understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I would give up my own faith if they'd understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But some have not accepted that. And to this day, there's a whole uh, sect of, of the Jews that do not accept that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So then he goes through and he says, well, God's, these are verses following, he says, basically God had a plan, and that plan was to take that covenant and the Messiah and give it to more than just the Jews, he'd give it to the Gentiles as well. So verse 16 picks up, it says, so then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. God has the right to do what he wants to do with his plan. For scripture tells Pharaoh, I raise you up from the, for this reason, so that I might display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And we start to struggle with that a little bit. Wait a minute, God's kind of playing with us a little bit? And some will start to say, well, aren't we just pawns at this point? If God is hardening whom he wants to harden, softens whom he wants to soften. So you will say to me, therefore, why then, right? Why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So the people back then, 2,000 years ago, were asking the same question. If God is that sovereign, if God is that powerful, why does he find fault in us? And this is his response. But who are you a mere man, to talk back to God. Will what is form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? I, uh, I didn't get to choose what family I was born into, 
But I was never angry at my parents that I was born into their family. I don't know how it worked. I, could, I suppose I could be angry at God for, you know, maybe not put me in another family that I want to be in or something like that. But, but I, I couldn't be because I was born where I was born and that was okay. And sometimes we have to just realize that God has us where he has us. And that's okay. And when it comes to this issue of salvation, we don't understand all the ins and outs, even though we'll try to at times to understand how things work the way they work and how salvation works and why this person is affected by it and this person is not. But the truth is we don't understand all of that. We don't get it. The question I leave with you is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with just giving it over to God and say, God, Will you take charge of this? So, I want to give you a little bit of, of a history lesson here, a little theological lesson. At some, some point, uh, you may just tune out to this. You'll be like, okay, this is just those theological nerdy stuff. Okay, if that's okay, if you do, check out for a minute or two and then just come back in. But, um, but let it, let's just kind of go through this, and, uh, and you'll see a little bit about what's happened over the years when it comes to theology. I'm going to give you two words here, monergism and synergism. If you are a person who believes that, that God is totally the only one to bring salvation to a person, like God is fully responsible for salvation, then you are a, a monergist, okay? So you're on the left end over here. If you believe that God and man work together, mankind, people, men and women, work together to bring salvation to a person, you're a synergist, okay? And then you can be somewhere in between the scale. And so for years, okay, thousands of years, theologians, this is what they do, they get around, you know, a table like this, drink their coffee and argue these points. Where are you? Well, I'm a monergist. Where are you? Well, I'm more of a synergist, but I'm like a 3.1 or, you know, something like that. And, you know, I'm somewhere on that scale. And then they'll give their reasons as to why, and, and they'll talk about that using Scripture. So the question is, well, where is it on there? Is it all God? When, when a person is saved, is it the responsibility of God to bring that person to salvation? Is he the only one that has a say over salvation in that person's life? Or does that person have something to give in that situation? And so over the years, I'll give you a little bit more, oops, um, a little bit more here. And this goes, I'm going to teach you a little bit of uh, Latin today. You may be looking at those words going, what in the world that is not English? And it's not, so... Um, those are not, those are five solas, and you can go back throughout history, and what happened is there was a time when, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was growing, it was big, about 500 years ago, Martin Luther says, wait a minute, I was reading the Bible, and the Bible doesn't say what the Roman Catholic Church is saying. And so he went, and he posted the thesis on their door, this was celebrated here recently, 500 years ago, he posted this thesis on the door, but the thesis is way too long for us to cover. So as time went by, what were known as reformers kind of boiled down to five protests against the Roman Catholic Church. Well, we are in a what's called a Protestant-type church. Where does the word Protestant come from? It comes from protest. So we are, I know we don't talk about this much, but in a sense, we protest what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching 500 years ago. Now, we don't talk about that much. We don't go out there. We're not writing theses and 
you know, throw them on the doors and stuff like that. But here's, here's how it came about, and it'll make more sense as you go along. So sola scriptura, what is that? That is, like I say, Latin for we believe only in the scripture. Only the scripture is our authority. Okay, only scripture. Sola is only in the uh, sola is only in the scriptura is scripture. So you have only in scripture. That's what we believe. That was a protest, and came about because the Roman Catholic Church says, well, it's not only scripture, but we also hold to what the Pope teaches or Vatican. Just recently, there was an article that came out talked about the Pope and how he said there's no hell. Vatican came out and said, wait a minute, that's not really what there's. There's a little bit of a disagreement going on right now uh, with the powers that be in the Roman Catholic Church because they're saying, okay, what's going to happen in this situation? If they were to decide there is no hell, then all of the Catholic Church would follow behind that, regardless of what Scripture has to say. And so they kind of have, have merged the two, and they believe in both. We go back and say, no, we want to believe that the Bible is our authority. Scripture is our authority, Okay. So that's the first one. Sola fide is the idea of faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. Sola gratia is by grace alone. Okay, so again, uh, not by sacraments, not by works that we do. And so again, it was a protest against what was going on at the Catholic Church at the time. And then solus Christus is we, we are placing our faith in Christ alone. Not in, um, again, the sacraments, not in the priests that we would go and do confession with, or anything like that. We place our faith in Christ alone. He is our, our high priest. He is our Messiah. And then sola dia gloria, which I think is kind of a, a little bit of a dig a little bit, I guess, because I think the, what it means is for, for the glory of God alone. The Catholic Church would say they're doing it for the glory of God alone. But we too were like, yeah, we're doing it for the glory of God alone. So kind of to rally the troops up you know, a little bit. So these are the five solas that were presented to the church. What, the reason I bring this up is when you look at sola fide and sola gratia, this is where this argument comes back into play as to who is responsible for salvation. And a monergist is going to look at sola gratia and say, by grace and grace alone are you saved. And as soon as you start to say that we have any kind of impact on salvation, you've moved it over into works. Okay, so they'll be very clear that it's just by grace and grace alone. The problem is, as you begin to look in sola fide, it looks like we have some kind of responsibility in this whole thing of salvation. I'll give you an example. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13, it says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? Everyone who calls. So, is that man's responsibility, or is it God's responsibility? To save. And that's where the question comes back to, and we go back to this, this sliding scale, and some would say, okay, a monergist or a synergist. I want to actually pull you away from that whole debate, even though I just presented it to you. Pull, I'll pull you away from that and just simply say that I think it's, it's both in the sense that they're supposed to run parallel with each other. 
It's not an either or an or. This is the concept that I think we kind of have a difficulty wrapping our minds around. But God's Word presents both. God is absolutely sovereign. There's no doubt about it. He is in control. But He also tells us, and the Scripture tells us, it's by faith that we're saved. And because we're saved by faith, I think these ideas run parallel. He is sovereign and we are responsible in some way. But His grace starts the process. And His grace is what sees us all the way through. He begins to penetrate and work on the heart. He begins to bring us to a point where we see who He is. Some of you will say, I had no idea why I was exposed to the gospel. Whether it was a grandparent or it was a neighbor or you decided to go to church one day, you were driving by and all of a sudden there's this like sense, like, I should go there. And when you went, you heard the gospel. You'll say, I don't know why that happened. Well, yeah, you do. It's because God was working in your heart. He calls you there. That's how it works. God calls us there. It's not like we came up with the idea on our own. God begins to work in our heart. He begins to to call us to himself. And, And that's the grace part. And so it's by grace that he does that. And then somewhere along the way, in perfect unity with God's whole plan and his sovereignty, we by faith believe. We accept him. So there you go. There's kind of the, the theology and behind salvation a little bit and how the workings and how God brings us to that point. Still doesn't answer this question, though, does it? What happens to people who never hear the gospel or are mentally unable to understand it? It doesn't answer the question, but it does lay the foundation. And it's so important that we lay the foundation first so we can understand really how to maybe approach this, this question even better. So we come back to some of these questions. Who is the author of salvation? Let's try that again. Who is the author of salvation? Or you can ask this question, who writes the rules? Who paved the way? Who is the judge? Now if you begin to think you're the answer to any of those questions, then your theology is off. Okay? Because God is the author. He writes the rules. He paved the way through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He ultimately is the judge. Not you or me. Not the church. Not any person on the earth. He is the judge. So that's important to understand as we look more at that question and wrestle with it some more. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember what happened long ago. For I am God, this is God talking, and there is no other. I am God, no one is like me. Now, when you read something like this, I don't know about you, but for me, it jumps off the page, and I start to ask the question why does God, who is almighty, supreme, powerful, have to say to us that there is no other God? Why does he have to tell us that there is no one like him? And I think the answer to that question is because we so quickly replace God with other things. We so quickly replace God with ourselves. I have to admit, I don't know if you admit this or not, but I admit to God quite often in my prayer life, Lord, I have once again replaced you with me. I have put myself in your shoes I have acted like I am the judge. I have acted like I'm making the rules. I am acting like I am the one who gets the final say. 
And I have to humble myself again and just bring myself to the point and be like, no, God, you, you are God, and you are God alone. That's a regular practice, because I can simply replace God. So these are, are reminders for me. There is no other God. He is God. There is no one like him. And that's why he goes on to say, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Okay, so that's who God is. And he has the power and he is sovereign and he's able to do those things. Well, fast forward, that was in the Old Testament. John uh, records Jesus' life and how he's walking upon the earth, and he comes to Nicodemus in this passage. Nicodemus is a ruler, and he begins to ask the question, how can a person be saved? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? How does that happen? Like, you don't go. And, and he asks him literally, he's like, I can't go back into my mother's womb and be born again. Jesus is like, man, you don't even understand my illustration. So Jesus walks up there and says, listen, you have to be born physically, and you have to be born spiritually. And this is how it happens, verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son that, uh, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, this part. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So he tells us anyone who believes is a follower of Jesus Christ at the judgment will not be condemned. But anybody who doesn't, at the judgment, they will be condemned. How does a person believe? Well, that's really the, the next question. And we go into Ephesians chapter 2, and it gives us a little more uh, of a description on how this process takes place. Some of you are like process people. You want to know exactly how things are processed. Well, this, this tells us, I think, how it happens. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, okay? We have sin in our life. We're dead spiritually, okay? That's what he's talking about, spiritually. We don't have this connection with God. Death is a, is a separation, okay? We're separated from God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in disobedience. So that's according to what Satan was doing and so forth. We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were. But God, now this is where it starts to get interesting, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. This is where, again, those who are like monergists will, will go to this verse and say, ah, see, this is the point. God makes us alive. You cannot bring yourself back from the dead. God has to begin to, to work in your hearts. And that's absolutely true. We can't. We can't bring, and I can't do it either. I can't go to somebody who's spiritually dead and start to stir in them something, you know, so that they would want God. I can't do it. That's why prayer is so important when we're going to go out and evangelize, that we pray, God, please let the Holy Spirit work in somebody's heart. Because he's the only one that can bring people back from the dead. So God made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace, by God working in our hearts, our lives. So he's the one that brings that spiritual renewal, that spiritual desire. He also raises us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavens in Jesus Christ, which is an awesome passage statement, by the way, that we are united with him. We're actually in heaven when we place our faith in him, but that's a whole other message. So uh, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. Now he brings those two concepts together, grace and faith, right? And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. There is a plan, a purpose for each of us that we would be fulfilling when we follow God. And he's created those things for us to, to do. So we see kind of how it works. We see that God's sovereign. We see that there's faith involved. What does this, and I'm going to rephrase this question, what does the author of salvation do with people who have never heard the gospel or cannot understand it? You may still be saying, you really haven't answered that question yet. Are you just trying to beat around the bush? Take us around it? Well, I'll try to answer it. I just don't know that you're going to be satisfied with the answer. I just hope you're content to not be satisfied. Is that even possible? He does what he decides is best. Okay? I'll take you to a few passages here. But ultimately, when God does what is best, are we going to challenge or argue with what he does? Are we going to say, well, God, I mean, I know you're doing what you seems best, but I think you should do something different. We do that, don't we? Sometimes we do it internally, but we do that. Like, this is what you want, God? Is that right, Rachel? You've struggled with that? Yeah. No. We do. So the unreached. What does God say about the unreached? I'll break it down to the unreached and the unable. This is what we read. Romans 1.20 it says, For his invisible attributes, talking about God, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation. Ah, I think if I move, hit my phone the wrong spot, it goes back. There we go. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. What he tells us in Romans 1 is that there is nobody who will stand before God at some point and say, you know, I don't know that I can believe in you, or I don't know that there's enough evidence to believe in you. He says, everybody, there's enough evidence around you. We, we started with Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, what that means, I don't know as far as salvation. Do they have to know the specifics of Jesus Christ coming and dying upon the cross and rising from the dead? Do they have to know all the ins and outs of what salvation looks like? It's, I've heard of, of missionaries going into far you know, the reaches of the earth, and they'll be like, wow, they already knew some of the gospel somehow. And maybe somebody took it to them at one point, or I don't know. God has a way. If God wants people, and God does want people to be saved, but if he, if he knows, hey, there's somebody right there that I'm going to give the gospel to, he's going to get it to them. Nobody is without excuse. Okay? Again, I don't know how it all works. I don't know how the people in, in you know, the corner reaches of the earth, hear the gospel, you know, the corner of the earth where, where nobody has gone to. I don't know how that works, but, but if God wants salvation there, it'll get there. Okay. Um, Romans 10, 14 through 15 does tell us one of God's ways and is the prominent way 
that is to happen. How then can they call on him they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And it's clear, again, this is the man's responsibility part, that God has entrusted the gospel to us, his church, and he says it is your responsibility to take that gospel out. Now, when you go and you start to teach and preach the gospel, you don't know what the response is going to be. You don't know if that person is going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but it's not for you to know. It's not for me to know. Our job, our responsibility is simply to communicate the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ and leave the results up to God. Right? I can't determine. I can't, as much as I want somebody, as much as Paul, we read about that, right, in, in Romans 9. He wants his brothers and sisters to be saved. And yet some were not. He would give up his own faith if they had come to faith in Christ. And yet some did not. But that didn't keep him from going out and preaching the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We don't understand all the ins and outs. We don't understand why some people get saved, why some people don't. I don't understand why some people are born in certain families and some people aren't. I don't understand why some, in some countries some kids are hungry and here some kids have more food than they even know what to do with and they're throwing it away in the garbage can. I don't understand why that happens. And I'm not supposed to understand I'm just supposed to trust on this earth that God is good. He has a purpose in his plan for everything that's happening. The unable. So that's, uh, you know, probably the best answer I can give you for the, for the unreached. The unable. Now, this one's maybe a little more difficult because Scripture doesn't really deal with this very much. Uh, there's some ambiguous passages out there, and I'll, I'll reference them. But just uh, as far as uh, the unable, it's, it's difficult to really know what, what God's desire is. And again, it just goes back to simply this, that we trust that God is a good judge. Okay? So for a child who never gets to the point where he's able to understand or she's able to understand the gospel, we trust that God's a good judge. David talks about his son who dies or dies early, uh, he's young, an infant, and he says, I, I trust that one day I'll see him again. And the New Testament makes some, like again, ambiguous statements about how a household is saved and potentially how the father and the mother in that household are, are, are believers and that somehow has like an um, umbrella policy, I guess, not an umbrella over the whole earth or the whole house, excuse me, um, and, and, and that somehow protects those, those children. I don't know. I don't know how it all works, but I do know that God is good and he's just. He's a perfect judge. And we can't find fault with him in those situations. I know that God knows every single person. Jeremiah 1.5, he says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb, and I set you apart before you were born. God has a purpose and a plan, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows of a child who's going who's to pass before they get to that age of acceptance and knowing, being able to know whether or not Jesus is Lord. He knows of that that one who's born and just mentally cannot comprehend or have the ability to comprehend the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows them, but he still has a purpose and a reason for them. And he still loves them. If he can say this about Jeremiah, he says it about you, and he says it about every other person. This is also a passage often used for the child 
who's murdered or killed inside the womb in an abortion situation. God knows them. He knows them before they're in the womb. Think about that. That's how important and valuable life is, is to God. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. This gets complicated too. If God is sovereign, and he is Lord, and he can cause people to be saved, well, why doesn't he? And that comes back to God allows some sort of freedom for people to accept or reject him. How those two work together, again, I don't know. I just know that the Bible teaches both. That God is sovereign, and he gives you and I the ability to believe and not to believe. And so as you go from here, you're going to be like, well, that didn't really answer the question, Pastor Ryan. And, uh, and the reason I can't answer the question is because just like the 2,000 years worth of teachers before me, they don't answer the question. Uh, they just kind of go around it and give different ideas and examples and so forth. I just want to be honest with you. It's, it's a difficult question to ask. And it's a difficult question to answer. So our responsibility is just to say, yeah, we believe in, in a sovereign God who is powerful and who has given us the word and we know what salvation is. And now we're to take that salvation and we're to give it to other people, speak the truth in love and pray for people and see what God's going to do. That's what we do. And so as a church, that's what we do, right? We take the gospel, we live, we breathe it, we spread it, we share it, and we'll leave the results up to God. So pray for people. Pray for our missionaries. There are missionaries out there on the front lines. They're going to places that you and I would never go to to give the gospel to people. They're doing it in absolute obedience to, to God and what God has said to take the gospel into parts of the earth. You and I, we're called to go out into our neighborhoods right here in America, in our own country, right here in Nampa, and share the gospel with people because there are people right here in America, even though we have unlimited amount of resources, so it seems, when it comes to the Bible and Scripture and teaching and all of that, even though there's resources all over the place, people still haven't heard the gospel. So we take it to people, and we leave the results to God. Father, thank you for our time that we can get together and just look through these things and walk through them. Lord, we pray that we would understand you better. We would understand you more in salvation and its workings. But, Father, at the end of the day, we ultimately realize that you are the God of salvation. We are not. You are the author. We're not. You make the rules. We don't. And you've asked us to take this truth we know of your son, Jesus Christ, and take it out into the world and share it. So I pray, Father, that what we would hear over and over this morning is we do have a responsibility to take your gospel to the unreached. Now we have a responsibility to live our faith out in front of those who may not be able to understand it. And we trust that you're a good and just God, and you will do what's right. Lord, we confess at times we think we know what's right. And if that's the way we operate, humble us so that we will come under you 
and realize, recognize, proclaim, admit that you are right all the time. And so we are come now, we come now to this point of worship where we just come back to you and we say, you are a supreme, mighty God. We want to worship you with all of our heart because you deserve it and so much more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.